Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Your lovely local country pub is threatened with closure. Should you buy it? Where next for house prices? We have the latest indications. And growing your own vegetables, is it really worth the bother? Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast on personal finance and investing. I'm James Pickford, Deputy Editor of FT Money, and I'll be giving you this week's money news in downloadable form. Most of us have experienced the pleasures of a country pub, the roaring fire, the benches overlooking the village green, the Sunday roast washed down with a pint of well-kept ale. But there's a problem. More and more of them are closing down or being turned into homes or restaurants or coffee shops. Instead of retreating to their homes, though, local residents are increasingly taking matters into their own hands by buying up the pub and running it for themselves. Alan Livesey, a writer on the FT's Lex column, has been doing some frontline reporting for FT Money on Britain's country pub revolution. And he's here to tell us what he found. Uh, Alan, thanks for joining us. Hi, James. Uh, why are people willing to take on the risk of owning their local pub? And how are they raising money for it? I think that when it's a, particularly in country villages where the, the pub may be the only amenity really there. There may not be any shops. Uh, the post office may have closed. And there's a lovely pub where walkers stop by, where the, you know, the entire village gets together. They'll miss it, they feel, and they don't want to see it be the, the pub either disappear and become flats or house or, or just turn into a Costa coffee shop. Yes. And is it generally led by an entrepreneur or a philanthropist? Or is it, is it uh, more common to see groups of people doing this? I think it starts with one or two individuals who are customers. <laughs> they don't want to see the pub shut. Then they'll do a whip round and usually bring in more investors, usually locals. Uh, I think on the premise that there might be an effect to property prices <laughs> in the area. Ah, yes. Um, but it's presumably hard to say exactly what kind of effect on property prices. I mean, I have I came across you know one estate agent telling me he had a case where a couple wanted to move from their village because their pub had closed up in the in the Midlands. So I do get that. I do get the sense that there is a concern about that. On the other hand, some estate agents will say it does depend. I mean, it depends if the thing's in a national park, if it's in a beautiful location, the mm. pub may not be the only thing that's holding up uh, property prices. And when people decide to do this, are they 
standing behind the bar pulling pints or are they getting other people to do that? Are they hands-off uh, owners? Well, they're, they're hands-on owners in the sense that they have to manage it. So um, one of the pubs I looked at, the George, you know, I, I can assure you that the chairman is is involved all the time, and he has run companies and uh, the George in in, in, in Burfham in uh, in near Arundel down okay. in Sussex, yes. and that is a case where they had to get very involved. In other cases, they do get involved because they want to see what it's going to be like. And that was the case of uh, another pub, Seven Stars in Dinton in Buckinghamshire. And they got involved and very quickly realized you need professional management. And they yes. got out yes. and hired that person. Yeah, it's a tough business, isn't it? Uh, it? I thought also that pubs were quite hard to make money out of. Um, what sort of returns are these people telling you they're making, if any? Well, one of the reasons they get in is often the landlord or owner, previous owner has, has really struggled. Um, it may be that it was tied to a, a, a beer, a, you know, a brewery. Uh, it may have been owned by a, a landlord of pubs, and the rent sometimes just keeps going up. A new landlord comes in. There's better footfall, better trade. And they raise the rent again, and it becomes mm. a Sisyphean task to be able to keep this thing going, and they give up. Mm. That's when the locals realize there's no one else. They've got to step in. Is it easy? No. But what I'm hearing from the at least the people I interviewed is they have made a, a decent return. And what happens if you get into a sort of bidding war with, with, with a pub company? Are you always going to lose out in that case? I Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, there is the Localism Act of 2011, which... Uh, allows uh, a village or a council, I should say, to turn something into an asset of community value, list it. Um, All that does is give you the time to stop any bidding process on the other side and allow the locals, if they choose to do so, to put together a bid. They're given six months. If it, you know, if the price is just too high, I don't, you know, it's just not Going, to, they're not going to win, are they? But mm. I would say that probably you win if you have enough passion and interest and can show. Yes, you, know. you have your opportunity. You have your opportunity. Thanks very much indeed, Alan. And you can read more about taking over your local pub in this weekend's FT Money cover feature. We're going to stay with the theme of uh, house prices now in, in light of some interesting research looking at the performance of prices in 20 cities across the UK. Richard Donnell, Research Director at Housing Market Analyst HomeTrack, which did the analysis, is here to talk to us about it. Richard, thanks for coming in. Your research has uncovered some interesting developments, um, particularly when you look at London and the South East versus the rest of the country. What have you found? Well, we've been running this uh, index for cities. We found that London house price inflation is running at plus 1% in nominal terms. That's the lowest for eight years. Um, and we've also found that house prices within London are falling in 40% of postcodes, whilst they're still rising in 60. Move further afield into big regional cities like Manchester and Birmingham and places, and there's no signs of a slowdown in house price growth. Affordability still looks attractive, and house prices are rising at more than 7% per annum in, in five cities. Mm, a real a real gulf. What, just, to, just to ask initially, what are your figures based on? Are they, are they actual sales? Are they, are they asking prices right now? They're actual sales and they're valuations conducted by surveyors as part of the mortgage lending process. Um, We tend to find those two numbers are very closely related and it just makes the sample size bigger uh, as we build out the index. Yeah. Um, And people did start talking about London 
uh, falling prices uh, three years ago. Uh, but that was very much in the context of the most expensive luxury properties, properties in Mayfair, Kensington, those sorts of places. Where else in London are we now seeing prices come off? Well, yeah, prices are starting to fall further afield. I mean, the, the index we run for London City looks at London's housing market area. Um, people, when they decide where to live, if they work in London, they don't think about the administrative boundary stops at a certain point. So our index does stretch into the commuter land, the core commuter areas. Yeah. And so we're finding prices falling um, in, in places like um, out towards Guildford, um, out in places like Gerrard's Cross, as well as sort of those outer suburban commuter locations, like, you know, including places like Rains Park. So prices are starting to soften in our a whole range of places right across the market. And having seen that this softening uh, taking place, do you predict that it will it'll continue? Um, is, do you have anything to say about what will happen in future? I think over the rest of 2018, it, it, it's, I think we're going to see the, the percentage of markets registering price falls is probably going to keep on rising. It's not going to expand everywhere. But I think it's all about these markets where pricing has just got out of kilter with what buyers who prepare to live in that market want to pay or can afford to pay. And I think you know most of it is concentrated, as I say, in the higher value areas outside London, in the sort of inner zones within central London. So I'd expect over the course of this year there will be some more price falls coming through. We're probably going to see our headline index move to sort of zero or low falls by the middle of the year. And it's just all part and parcel of, of prices realigning to what demand that's in the market is prepared to pay today. Mm. And you mentioned Birmingham, Manchester, um, as, as part of a different story, story of growth. Which are the, the cities seeing the strongest growth uh, in your ranking at the moment? Well, it's Edinburgh number one, um, mm-hmm. followed by... And, uh, and where, what are we looking at there in terms it's of... It's about 7.5% year yeah. on year. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, the Scottish housing market took a lot much longer to get going. They had the independence referendum um, that sort of delayed things picking up. Then they introduced this new land and building tax, a new type of stamp duty in Scotland that also had an impact on the market. But finally, things now sort of seem to be um, improving. I guess the one non-bright spot in Scotland is Aberdeen, where prices are falling because of the oil price impact on demand locally. So we've actually seen house prices come off 15% in Aberdeen in the mm. last two years or so. So it's a real example of if you shock a local economy, you're going to have an impact um, on property prices. And just finally, when are you looking at uh, particularly places like Liverpool, Manchester, Birmingham, is it possible to discern how much of the growth is driven by owner-occupiers or by buy-to-let investors? I think investors are a part of the market. I mean, they've been a feature of the market um, for the last 15 years or so. At a national level, investors account for about um, 30% of sales, 20 to 30% of sales. That's buying, it's actually more like 20% 20 to 25% of sales. Um, That's a mixture of, of cash investors and mortgaged investors. That number's cooled a little bit uh, just recently. So the bulk of demand in these markets really is is owner-occupiers feeling more confident, having not taken advantage of, of lower interest rates, uh, lower mortgage rates. And off the back of an unemployment falling, that they're, they're coming into the market. You know, transaction volumes aren't racing away, but there's enough transaction activity to keep prices moving well above the level of earnings growth. Mortgage, mortgages are affordable too. Yep. Yeah. Thank you very much, uh, Richard Donald. You can read more about his research in this weekend's FT Money. And that includes a list of London postcode areas where prices are falling. Now, 
At FT Money, we've always tried to serve our readers' uh, interests by addressing the big questions about finance. Um, Should you transfer out of your pension? Which equity fund is best for your ISA? But I can't recall us ever tackling the question of uh, whether you should grow your own vegetables. Um, That's all changed this week because uh, James Max, author of our column Rich People's Problems, has identified a trend for posh people to plant their own potatoes, parsnips and peas. James, thanks for coming in. My pleasure. Um, Now, rich people growing their own vegetables. Is this actually a thing? This is a thing. This is a very, very exciting thing. This is something that if you're not doing it, you are missing out. And if you have thought about it, get on with it. And there are some real benefits. This is no longer a thing about, oh, we haven't got any money, so we must grow our own because otherwise we're all going to starve. We're in the middle of a world war. It's not that kind of thing. This thing is all about provenance. It's about finding things to do with your time. It's about having stuff to discuss with your neighbours. And it's about discovering things that because we've all been so stupid, we've all been so stupid by not going to local purveyors of fine, decent produce. So we all go to the supermarket, we've bought things out of packets, and it's become bland, boring and dull. So that means that you can't get a lot of the stuff that you can now grow. So when it comes to specialist tomatoes, heritage, vegetables, all sorts of tastes and flavours and colours and sights and sounds and all that sort of stuff, you can't go and get it. So therefore, the only way is to do it yourself, and you might enjoy it, and you might save some money. And to be honest, it's not about the money anyway. It's about taste and flavour and excitement. OK, so I was going to say there's an opportunity cost for uh, you know, people... Well, there uh, is. It means you can't sit in front of the telly and be boring. <laughs> <laughs> so not about saving money. Now, the only thing is, I, you know, I love a homegrown French bean as much as an ex-man. But uh, there's a problem in that growing them yourself... Uh, they all arrive roughly the same time over a two two or three week period, and when you're just deluged with these things, um, you have this glut. How do you how do you get round that? Well, look, there are several things. First of all, I think the glut is not quite as narrow a window. I mean, if you plant carefully, you can have stuff from May until almost beginning of November. So you can have some really long months of providing proper stuff if you plan it properly. The second point is that. There's no problem with freezing, particularly runner beans. If you freeze a runner bean, blanch it, freeze it, you can you can do all sorts of stuff with them, with the, with the fruit glut. So, of course, I would love to have fresh fruit all the time and never have to go to a shop. That's not possible. But what you can do is twofold. First of all, if you freeze berries and you freeze them well, you can use them in crumbles, you can use them in all sorts of cooking where it doesn't matter that they're not fresh. And you can make jam. I love making jam. It's the best thing ever. And you can give it to friends. You can get people involved with it. It's, it tastes so much better. It's amazing. Yeah. Am That's, I sounding enthused? You are. You, I mean, this is genuine. You sold me. Idea. But then I have to confess at this point as a, a certain disclosure, which is that I... Uh, I was this weekend digging over my my allotment in in North London that I Excellent. share with a with a friend now, but it, if I'm to compete with the, the the most fashionable allotment, what what should I be what should I be planting this year? Well, look, there are some there are some things that I think we should all grow because they do pay, taste better fresh, and I think you've identified beans, but there are so many different kinds of beans. So by all means, have the runner bean. But for example, you try and find a fresh bolotti bean in any shop anywhere, and I'll give you a prize because you can't. But fresh bolotti beans are incredible, and you can grow them, and then you can get the heritage ones, the purple ones, which are, which cost a fortune if you do find them, and generally they're not available either. So pick things which are interesting and and variable but then also go hunting for the things that you've never heard of for example like the asparagus pea 
this thing is delicious. I grew some last year. They're delicious. So it's a pea or a pea? What does it look like? Well, it, it's probably more of a bean, to be honest. They're brilliant. And, and you then mentioned a, something called a cucamelon. Oh, now, this is this year's excitement. I've not grown them before. I have, however, tasted them before. And they're like, um, they are a little bit cucumbery, but with a sort of limey, sort of slightly sour twist. Mm. So then they're not a fruit per se, but they're great in salads. So I thought, well, I've got to grow something new, something I've never grown before. This is it. It's all about the cucumelon this year. Fantastic. Well, I'm enthused. Perhaps you can return to us in a few months with some samples of your, your produce. And well, I'll bring some jam and we can have a jam <laughs> off. Thank you there to James Max, uh, FT Money's official horny-handed son of toil. Um, that's all from The Money Show this week. If you've got a story you'd like the FT Money team to follow up or a question to pose to our team of financial experts, get in touch. Email us money at ft.com. Tweet us at FT Money or comment on our articles online at ft.com slash money. We'll be back next Thursday at the usual time. Goodbye. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.